So last week we announced that we to keep you updated where we're at. We're busy with the town planner giving information that's required to submit a rezoning application to council. And so that is hopefully going to go in this week. And that process should take two or three weeks and then we get to start building. And so as we find out more, uh, we'll let you know. But please pray with us as we're on this very exciting journey. We hope to be able to move in this year still. That's our, our plan and our dream. So this is our sixth and final week of our purpose series. If you've got your purpose workbooks with you, page 16 is where you can take notes. Uh, there's a blank page there. Page 17 and 18 are for this week's life group, the last life group of the series, and uh, we'll be tying everything together at that life group. I don't know what it's been like for you, but for me, it's been quite eye-opening, quite challenging, quite revealing, trying to discover how God's made me, what He's wired me for, and I hope you too, as you've been on this journey of um, Sunday messages, life group messages, the devotions, you're able to go forward on this journey of exploring your purpose and your calling. We've been talking about on Sundays the five kind of big purposes that all believers are called to. Number one, Christ, have a relationship with God. Number two, Christ-likeness, becoming like Him as we follow Him. Number three, community, that we get to hang out with this church, the believers of God, His bride. Number four, we looked at last week, the common good. We are to do good to others, not just in the church, but those who are not yet part of God's family. And this morning, we're looking at the Great Commission, the last one. If you haven't yet figured out your exact specific calling and purpose, or maybe you, how do you say when you're looking for a job, you're in between jobs, you're in between purposes, because like Steve said, it's a conversation throughout our life. God has lots of different things for us to do. Maybe you in between your purpose right now. You can and I can wake up every morning saying, my purpose is Christ. It is to be like Christ. It is community. It is the common good. And it is the great commission. And so if we do those five big things all the time, our specific purpose comes into focus as we follow him. And so this morning we're on number five, the Great Commission. Matthew, in his gospel, tells how Jesus first calls Andrew and Peter. They are brothers, they are fishermen, and Jesus finds them on the beach. In Matthew chapter 4, four verse 19, he says, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. Now, fishing wasn't their hobby, wasn't the thing they did on weekends to unwind. It was their vocation. It was their job. They were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to repurpose your existing day job to make it count for something eternal. In Luke's gospel, we get a bit more detail. And what Jesus does, he borrows their boat. They've come in from fishing all night. He borrows their boats. He pushes out a little bit from the shore and he gets in the boat and he preaches to the crowd. And when his message is finished, people are dispersing. He says to Peter, well, now get back in your boat, push out and let out your nets for a catch of fish. We're going to read Peter's reply in a moment, but you get an indication from his reply who he thinks is the real fisherman. Obviously himself, right? And Jesus is not a fisherman. Jesus is a teacher. He's a rabbi. Little did he know that Jesus was also the creator of the universe and of the ocean and the lakes and the fish that were swimming around. And this is what uh, Peter says. He says, we've been fishing all night and we've caught nothing. 
Not even one fish. So Peter's tired. He's been on night shift. Now he's had to listen to some preacher talk. <laughs> Anyone who's worked night shift realizes this is not easy. <laughs> and then the, then the preacher says, no, get back in your boat. You've already cleaned the nets. You've packed up for the day or the night. Now get back in fish. Peter says, hey, we've caught nothing. Anyway, nevertheless, they, they do push the boat out. They throw the nets in. And at that moment, all these fish arrive in the net. And it's so full, the nets start to break. The boat leans over. They have to call for reinforcements. And Peter's words are this. He says, he goes back to Jesus. He falls at his feet and he says, go away from me, Lord. In that moment, Jesus has gone from being just the rabbi to suddenly being Lord. Peter has this mindset change of how he sees Jesus. And he says, I'm a sinful man. He realizes Jesus is a whole lot more than just a teacher or a preacher. He says, I'm undone. My sinfulness can't be around you. And Jesus answers, don't be afraid. Get up. I'm going to send you out to fish for men and women. Amen. Amen. Jesus is basically saying, don't let your weakness, don't let your sinfulness, don't let your shortcomings stop you from serving me. I think you'd say the same to us this morning. We're often making excuses. I, I can't do this, or I'm not good enough, or I don't know the Bible enough, or what if they ask a hard question? But actually, Jesus says, don't let your weaknesses stop you, because he doesn't let them stop us from serving him. It's not just a message for Peter, but for all of us. So this morning, here are three reasons why we should introduce others to Jesus, this great commission. Firstly, Christ's salvation is too good to be kept secret. Christ's salvation is too good to be kept secret. The, the verse we're using as an anchor for the series, Ephesians 2.10, you can all quote it, hey? For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. Don't look at the screen, it's not there, you should know it by now. <laughs> the two verses right before that, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, are just as good. Let me read them to you. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Notice the word gift. Christ's salvation, Paul says, is a gift from God. You can't earn it. You can't um, store up enough money, your assets, and trade for it. You can't barter for it. You can't do enough good to pay it back in any way. And we could speak about the salvation for hours and days from all kinds of verses in the Bible, but Paul says this is a gift from God. And I've experienced that gift. Many of you have as well. I want to share a few things from my own life of how this free gift of salvation has changed me. Number one, I have a relationship with God. Now, to us kind of Western Christians, that doesn't sound like a big deal because we know that phrase, Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion, etc. But did you know for hundreds and hundreds of years, Christianity, the world religions, never taught you could walk with God. Never taught you could have a relationship and talk and communicate and interact with God. God was the creator who had to be feared. And we should have a decent amount of awe and reverence for God. That's true. 
But if I walk around our neighborhood at night, or if I'm driving in my car to work, I'll often just start praying and talking to my heavenly Father in my car. Not in the temple, not with spiritual music in the background, just a relationship with my Father. I have a relationship with God, the one who made everything. It should honestly blow our minds. It really is an astounding thing. And that's made a huge amount of difference in my world. We can bring anything to him. We can bring our brokenness. We can bring our flaws. We can bring our imperfections. We can bring our sins, our mistakes, our massive mess-ups. We can bring them to him. It doesn't put him off loving us. Did you know that? If I've done something to upset my wife, I I approach her very carefully. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) My kids, when they've done something wrong, they approach me very carefully, (laughs) very nicely, very nice words all of a sudden. But God is not put off by our frailty, our humanity, our horrendous thoughts, our wrong motives in our hearts. He's not put off by those things. We can bring our selfish motives, our dreams, our desires. He never turns us away. Wow, we have a relationship with him, not based on how good we are, but on what God has done. And so we can never improve on it. You can never be good enough to God except what he's done for you already. So we can come to him with freedom and without anything hindering us. It's amazing. His arms are open wide to receive us. Second thing in my relationship with God, which, is, which I've experienced, is that my view of all things has changed. C.S. Lewis, he describes, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, he describes how when we come to know God, it's like the sun rising. Suddenly we can see, and the amazing thing is not that we can see the sun, which is pretty cool, and you shouldn't look at it without sunglasses on, Um, but by the light of the sun, we can see everything else, and we see ourselves differently. My life has changed because of God, but because His light shines on me, I see myself as I should be, not as I would like to see myself in my selfish desires. My view on Everything has changed from purpose to finances to marriage to sexuality to parenting to sport to history to language. It's all changed because of Christ's light shining into the world that I live in and I see it differently. I don't see it as the world sees it, but how God sees it. Thirdly, my heart has changed. Not to say that overnight I've gone from having evil desires to only having good desires. I'm still very much a work in progress. We all are. But the longer I've followed Christ, the more my heart has changed. Suddenly my desires line up with the kingdom of God and God's word more and more compared to what they used to. And I have new desires. Psalm 34 says, delight yourself in the Lord. And one way of translating it says, and he will put desires in your heart. God's given me new desires as I followed him. And there's a great sense of fulfillment as we live our lives to serve him rather than serve our own needs. There's a whole different spin and experience and a fulfillment that comes. Fourthly, my life's trajectory has changed. I can't imagine where I would be today 
If it wasn't for God's grace and love and forgiveness and leading and guiding, I know the path I was on before I met Jesus 18 years ago. And it's, it was not a good trajectory if I kept on down that road. I'm very task-orientated. I'm a human doer. I'm not a human being. I'm a human doing, right? I can't sit still for long. And I know if I had to follow my own way of doing things, I'd be following external success, accomplishments, achievements, full steam ahead at the expense of relationships, at the expense of my family and damaging people around me. That's because that was my natural wiring before I met God. But I'm so grateful to Jesus that he's put me in a community like this. And because of him and his church, I've come to know many of you quite well. And you've rubbed off on me and you've changed me. And my life is enriched because of the people God's put around me, this community. Thank God for that. Number five, my eternal destination has changed. Jesus speaks about the narrow path and the wide path and how it's the narrow road that leads to life, but the wide path that leads to destruction. And he says, find the narrow path, choose life. But by nature, people find themselves on the wide path, the road of easy living, the road of me, myself, and I. That's, we all get onto that, that path. And Jesus says that's the one that will lead to destruction. In our lifetime, we will make hundreds, thousands of decisions. Every day we make decisions, yeah? Little decisions that have really a small impact. What should I eat for breakfast this morning? Or what should I wear to church? Versus should I change jobs? Should I resign? Should I buy this house? Should I date this person? Big life-changing decisions. We make them all day. But there's one decision we make for eternity. Just one. And it's a choice of two paths. The narrow path or the broad path. And the narrow path from the outside looks like suffering, looks like pain. But when you step onto that path, it is one of treasure and gain in this life and the life to come. Amen. Contrast eternal life with what the Bible paints as the result of the broad road. It's not eternal death. Just so you know, the opposite of eternal life is not eternal death. That would be a blessing. If, if there was nothing when we died, if we were annihilated, and some people believe that. When you die, there's nothing. Who cares how you live or who you live for? But that's not what the Bible says. The opposite of eternal life is eternal life, but it's without Christ. It's a Christless eternity. That's called hell. There was a preacher in uh, London in the late 1800s, Charles Spurgeon. And he says, whatever you want in this life, you will get in the next life. If you want Christ, you're going to get Christ for eternity. But if you reject Christ, if you don't want him in this life, you will not have him in the life to come. And he says, I don't want you to go to a Christless eternity. Over my body, you have to jump over my body with my arms wrapped around your waist. That was the passion that he didn't want to see people go to eternity without Jesus. And Jesus Christ has even a greater compassion because he left the glories of heaven. 
to come to earth to die for you and I. And when people ask, well, how much does God love us? We point to the cross. We say this much. And the cross of Christ is like a giant yield sign in the lives of men and women. Will you follow him or will you reject him? And Christ would say, I would try and hold on to you with everything I have because God doesn't want us to go to eternity without him because he knows what that's like. Imagine with me for a moment that you had some um, incurable disease, some deadly disease that didn't have a cure, HIV maybe. Imagine that you were clever and you researched hard and you somehow managed to find a cure. And you administered the cure to yourself and you got better. You didn't have HIV or whatever the, the disease was. And then you tried it out on some friends and they also got better and healed from this disease. But imagine if you then shoved it in your back pocket and did nothing with it. What would you say about a person who had a cure like that but didn't tell others about it? See, you and I have the cure for SIN disease. Okay? But imagine you had this cure for HIV and you didn't want to do anything about it. And your reasons, your excuses were, you know, they sound quite politically correct. Your health is a private matter. Don't want to talk about people's health, you know. Don't want to be seen as medically bashing anyone. You know, medical hypocrites are their worst kind of hypocrites. So you just, you don't want to upset the apple cart. You just want to have friends and take it easy so you don't tell anyone about your cure for HIV. Put that in the spiritual equivalent. You and I have the cure for SIN disease. Do we use similar excuses not to tell others about this great salvation that God has? His salvation is too good to keep a secret. Number two, the reasons for why we should tell people about Christ. Christ's passion is too big to contain. People, we said last week, matter to Jesus and they should matter to us. Matthew 9, chapter 36, Jesus says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed like sheep without a shepherd. What do you do when you're around a whole lot of people? Do you have compassion and pity on them or do you just get irritated by people? I've recently been traveling for work overseas and I went on eight different flights and probably as many airports. I stood in lots of queues. There were people all over the place wherever I was. And every now and then you kind of, you catch your breath, you look around, you see people and you're like, I wonder, do they have a relationship with God like I do? And you can't tell from the outside. But whenever Jesus saw someone who was disconnected from him, he felt this compassion for them because he said they were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, they were in danger of the wolf catching them. They were harassed. And that's true of every person who doesn't know God. No matter how good their life looks from the outside, they are harassed. They are sheep without a shepherd. They're at risk from the wolf. Jesus has this amazing compassion on them. The next verse Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his field. And I hope you see Jesus' train of thinking. 
He says, I've got compassion on people, and the harvest is painful. In other words, the people who are disconnected from him are everywhere. And then he says, ask, pray that God would send out workers to the harvest field, to these people who don't yet know him. So when you and I read verses like that, yes, we should pray. We start praying, Lord, send out workers to the harvest field. And we, we think of people like Terry or like Vasen, or like Franco, or like Michael Peters, and like, these are such good people. Oh, Jesus, they love people. They have the same compassion as you. Lord, send them out. Give them more opportunities. All the while, God's tapping us on the shoulder. Hey, I want to send you. It's not just for a few of us. It's for every one of us. Yes, we're to pray, but we're also to go. We are to be the workers in the harvest field. He's sending every one of us. Well, where's my harvest field, Glendon? Wherever you are, your neighbors, your colleagues, your friendship circles, wherever you are, you're on mission, the great co-mission. It's called the co-mission because we co-labor with God. Jesus says, I've done the hard work. All that's left to go is get the harvest. In the 2018 Soccer World Cup, the world was captivated by a junior soccer team who got trapped underground in caves in Thailand. Do you remember that? And uh, these kids and their coach had gone in and uh, unaware that there was a massive monsoon on its way, the waters came down, they rose up, and, and these kids, this team and their coach were stuck underground. And all these, um, there's a picture of them, right? Uh, for two weeks, the rescuers outside tried to get to them but couldn't come up with a good way. And eventually, two British divers decided, we're going to go see and dive underneath. But they had no idea if the kids were still alive. Two weeks later, trapped in a cave. And these divers go in. And it's pitch black. It's underwater. They've got their diving gear, their respirators, etc. They don't know the tunnel. They don't know if the kids are alive. And they, they start swimming under these tunnels. There were three sections that were so narrow they had to take off their scuba gear and swim and drag it with them through the tunnels, okay? Two kilometers in. Now, two kilometers when you're swimming is far, okay? Two Ks in, they pop up in like a kind of a cave area. They see no one. They see some kind of fresh graffiti and they think, well, should we go back or should we carry on? They decide to go on. Two more kilometers Total of four kilometers in, they pop up and they see this picture. Every boy and their coach still alive. Can you imagine the relief on those kids' faces that people on the outside had not given up on them two weeks later? And it was a massively complicated effort. There were hundreds of professional divers, thousands of other people supporting and helping, and eventually they decided we have to get these kids out before the next rains come. And they did, and every person came out alive. Amazing story. You might look at the stats and think, well, 13 people, 12 of them kids. People die all the time. There are tens of thousands of people that die every day. Why put so much effort into 13 kids who were probably a bit silly to go in there anyway, right? I wonder what you and I would say if we were there. Would we have helped out in the ways that these people helped out? But why spend all that effort for three kids to try and get them out alive? It's because the value of every life counts. Every life counts. 
And if it counts, and if it's true for 13 soccer players trapped underground four kilometers in a cave in Thailand, how much more for the eternal destiny of people that Jesus died to set them free? His compassion is too big to be contained. And God's compassion doesn't say to us, retreat, bunker down, keep it to yourself, live in your own little restricted small world. He says, no, have a heart for other people. Don't retreat to your isolated world of comfort and contentment. His compassion is too big to contain. Number three, why should we tell people about Jesus? His commission is too great to disobey. The great commission is too great to disobey. When you think of people who are like on their deathbed, many of them have Quite profound things they say. Why? Because their whole life's come into focus. They've realized what's really important and they say these things which are quite striking, quite profound. You know that Jesus' last words were the same. Very profound. He wasn't on his deathbed, but he was about to ascend to heaven. And in four of the five places in the New Testament where Jesus' last words are, last words are, found, written, recorded, that's the one. They all speak about the Great Commission. Let me read them to you. Matthew 28, verse 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. Mark chapter 16. Go and preach the gospel to all creation. John chapter 20. As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will be my witnesses, Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Can you see how he says to his followers before he leaves earth, don't just retreat, don't get stuck in smallness, don't just stay in Jerusalem, but the ends of the earth. Go and take this gospel where it hasn't been heard before. Take this message, this cure, this good news to the ends of the earth. And as the world's population grows, the weight of this commission gets deeper and bigger You know that there are around about 38 million churches in the world. Wow, 38 million churches. That's amazing, right? A whole lot of people have taken Jesus' words very seriously. Go and take this gospel all over the world. Do you know how many churches are planted each year? How many brand new churches? Around about 50,000. But that's still far too few to cope with the increasing number of people on the earth. We need more people to go. We need more churches to be planted, more people to preach this gospel wherever they are. Most of these churches are clustered in Christianized countries. There are many places in the world where you can go where you can be born, live your whole life, and die without anyone telling you the gospel of Jesus. That's the reality. John Piper wrote this about 25 years ago. He says, from time to time in the life of the church, there needs to be a wake-up call to some simple and central and basic things. One of these is that Christianity is an evangelistic movement. It's persuasive and expansive and missionary. It's not coercive. It doesn't use the sword or manipulation or brainwashing, but it does proclaim and persuade and plead and pray. 
When we lose a passion to see people won over for Jesus, we lose Jesus. Christianity is a soul-winning, outreaching, mind-persuading, heart-entreating, rescuing missionary faith, or it's not true Christianity at all. We need to be reminded of this, he says, because it's incredible how listless we become while calling ourselves Christians. Little by little, our whole orientation can become inward. We go about our in-house religious business like a medical clinic that sees fewer and fewer patients and has more and more staff meetings until all that's left is a smooth running program for the doctors and nurses and their families. This is what happens to many churches. Let that not happen to Hope City Church. Let that not happen to you or I where our world gets so about me and what God can do for me that we're stuck in tininess when actually God says, go and take this gospel. It's why we have a world map at the back. So when we come in and we turn around, we can see God. We might not go there, but surely we can pray. Like we prayed this morning for many nations in our prayer meeting. So let me end with this question. What will you and I do with this? With Christ's great compassion, with his grace, with his love, with his salvation. It's possible to hear this message while you're sitting there and think, well, well done for the guy on stage. He looks like he's pumped up. I'm going to pray he's got more opportunities. <laughs> but actually, it's, it's for all of us, friends. Do you know why? Because I don't live next to your neighbors. And I don't work with your colleagues. I'm not in your family. I can't affect or influence those people. The reason God's put you where he has is that you can fish for men and women. We're not all going to be full-time evangelists like Peter, but Jesus says, follow me and I will make you into fishers of people. In other words, as we follow Christ, we fish for people. If we're not fishing for people, are we really following Jesus? We should ask ourselves. But we fish for people wherever he's put us. So your leisure activities, your holidays, your hobbies, wherever it takes you, God wants us to reach out. And will we go beyond our comfort zones and invite people just to have coffee with us and build a friendship with them or invite them over for a meal so that when there's a good friendship, we can say, hey, come to church. We're doing this purpose series. Why don't we start now, this year, befriending people that when Christmas time comes, hey, do you want to come to the Christmas carols thing? Do you want to come to an Easter service? Why? We've already built a friendship with them, and it's easy to invite them. Will we go beyond our comfort zone and do those sorts of things? You know that people who are convinced and urgent always find a way. But those who are not convinced always make excuses. Which will you and I be today? Last story. There's a book called All In by Mark Batterton. And in this book, he describes a, a very special type of person. He called them the one-way missionaries. In the days before airplanes, people used to go everywhere by ship. That's how they would travel from country to country. And the, the gospel went out on these ships. People went to new lands. And the one-way missionaries were people who were going to new countries 
where the gospel hadn't been preached, and they weren't sure if they'd ever come back. So they bought a one-way ticket on the ship. Many of them took their coffin with them. They didn't pack their luggage in, a, in suitcases. They packed the luggage in the coffin because they thought, well, I might die on this foreign country. I might never get a chance to come back. One-way missionaries. One man, A.W. Milne, went to some islands in the Pacific called the New Hebrides. He packed up his stuff, said goodbye to everyone he knew, packed his luggage in a coffin on the ship. And every other missionary who'd been to these islands before had died soon after setting foot because the people that lived there liked to hunt for heads. They were head-hunting people. Not in the HR sense we think of today, but in a very literal figurative sense. So he's going to a place where others before him had died, takes his coffin with him. He gets there onto the island with his coffin. And amazingly, he's not killed when he arrives. And he lives there for 35 years amongst these people, just living out his faith, telling them about Jesus, sharing his life with them. And he dies after being there for 35 years. And they bury him and they put up a, a gravestone. And they, the writing on the gravestone that they put up there said this. When he came, there was no light. And when he left, there was no darkness. Isn't that amazing? Friends, you and I might not get to be part of that kind of a story. But every day we get the chance to shine his light in the lives of people who are living in darkness. You know what the scary thing is? They might think they have it all together. You might look at their lives and think, wow, what an amazing life you've got all together. They don't even know they're living in darkness. God calls us this great commission to go with them. Can we close our eyes and bow our heads as we're ending? Father, this morning we are so stirred.